Hey, Mike, do you know what the executor is in Star Wars? Uh, yes, isn't it? It's one of the Star Destroyers, but I don't remember which one. I think I forget whether it's like the Super Star Destroyer or is it just one of the other ones? I believe it's it's Darth Vader's Star Destroyer. Yeah. Okay. Executor, and it's funny. I used to call it the Executor when I was a kid because it kind of spelled like that, but I, I learned it's called the Executor. So here's my question for today: How many bounty hunters are on the Executor when the Rebels are hiding in the asteroid field? Bounty hunters, jeez. Um, this is so. Is Empire Strikes Back? Remember? Yeah. It's the, the, and they're all like standing around, and he says like, "Notice integrations." Exactly. And Robot Chicken has done a great parody of this. If if anyone has not seen that, go type in Robot Chicken Star Wars Bounty Hunters. But how many? Oh God, how many exactly? Um, I mean, there's between four and six. Uh, if I had to guess, I'd go on the higher end. There's probably six or seven actually. Um, I'll go with seven. Final answer. Sure. It is six. Damn. Very oh, well. close, sir. I don't know. I would have said five, but Boba Fett, Dengar, Zuckus, Forlom, Bosk, and IG-88. In this episode of Starters of the Rest of Us, Mike and I discuss determining which signals matter, staying on task without extrinsic motivation, and more listener questions. This is Startups of the Rest of Us, episode 443. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So where this week, sir? Yesterday, I was putting together a video for Google because I'm going through, last fall, they decided that they were going to come out with like their new privacy policy, and they're basically pushing it on everybody who's using their APIs, and they're saying, oh, well, if you're using our API and you're getting data from our customers, which technically there are my customers, but if you're getting data from Google from those people because they are you know, supplying their credentials and it's passing through us, you have to conform to these new rules around what you're going to be doing with data and how you surface that to the users. So they just basically announced it and I think it's October or something like that. And they said, oh, these new things are coming, but we don't really have any details on it yet. But over the past couple of months, they've really started pushing forward with like the approval process. And I had to send them a video that walked through exactly how people authenticate through Bluetick and every single place where data that I get from Google is used and how it's used and show it in the privacy policy and everything else. And I'm just like, oh, this sucks. And what sucked even more is I created this 30 minute video and then I went to basically dump it into YouTube because of course you can't submit it in any other way except by putting the video on YouTube. And I found out that there was no sound. So I had to do it all over again. <laughs> Oh, man. You had to re-record it or just re-render it? I had to re-record it. I was like, this sucks. And I, re I tested the sound before, like the first time, too. I tested it. It worked. And then I did the video and no sound. It's like, come on. That is no good. So you basically pissed away a bunch of time on something that really did not move your business forward. Exactly. Well, of course, this whole thing doesn't really move my business forward. But I don't know. I'm, I still have concerns about the whole thing because they say that depending on what you're doing, you may need to go through like a third party security review. And they're like, oh, and that'll cost anywhere from fifteen to seventy five thousand dollars. And I'm like, um, yeah, I don't know about that. Interesting. Yeah, they must have an exemption, I'm guessing, for small companies. I mean, that seems like an odd thing to saddle you with. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like uh, they have, what is it? It's PCI has like self-certification and there are often things like that where it's a pain in the neck to do, but there is some out. So 
I would guess they'd get serious backlash if there's, if there's not, but uh, that's, that's not good, man. It's not good when, cause you've had this in place for a while. Right. And then they've, they've changed policy. Mm-hmm. Huh? Google changing something and hurting someone's business. That's, that's news. Shocker. The sad part about that is that I specifically built blue tick using IMAPs that I wouldn't rely on their API so that if they decided to change things on me, then I basically wouldn't be affected. And uh, guess, how, guess how that was working out for me right now. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to hear that, man. It's tough. It's tough to rely on any third party. I mean, this, you know, I talked about when I had Hittail and how we were reliant on Google keywords and then they did not provide it. And then we got into the, the webmaster tools and then they broke that. They break that every six months. I mean, it was real, really frustrating. And that was a big reason that when I wanted to start my next startup, I didn't want to be reliant. And then you just wind up being reliant. You know, you're relying on somebody at some point, right? You're relying on Amazon or Google for hosting and it's hard to switch. Yes, there are options, but it's a tremendous amount of effort to switch. And you know, even just sending emails as, as you and I know, like getting in spam inboxes and on blacklists like that, you, you become reliant on, on them. And then you have to build all this infrastructure to keep people from, from spamming people. And this is another example of you do something because it makes sense and it makes it easier for your customers. And, you know, in this case, it's really <laughs> kind of getting you into a bunch of extra work to just maintain this thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is a double-edged sword though, in that it creates this hurdle that if anyone wants to come in after the fact and try to build that, like they're, it, it just makes it more difficult for them. But just by virtue of building your app and making it better over time, that does the same thing generally. So I don't know, still trying to work through it. And I sent it off to them and what was it? I sent it to them, the video to them. And less than an hour later, they got back to me and said, okay, now that this other thing needs to be fixed. I'm like, all right. So I fixed that and spent, burned another three or four hours fixing that. Cause they're like, you can't have non-production systems using the same client ID. I'm like, dear God, it's the same thing. Like, you know, ugh. it's like, all right. So I don't know. I had to switch everything over and modify my build server and everything else. So Mm-hmm. Anything else uh, aside from uh, technical and integration challenges going on with old BlueTick? I've got my webinar that I'm doing, which by the time this episode comes out, it will have been yesterday. So I'm doing that for HR.com, and we'll see how that goes. So i got to get them the final PDFs of the slides and uh, so that they can post them to the website and then get the presentation on Monday. So that'll be good. Sounds good. On my end, you know, just obviously pushing forward with Tiny Seed and things are going well there. I'm very, I'm having a great time and it's, I'm you know very excited about the, the batches coming together quickly. We have almost all of the startups, you know, selected and have, you know, made offers and sent paperwork and that kind of stuff. So there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, I, I think I've said on the podcast in the past, like legal is is the the bottleneck and has been now for a month or two because we've been we've been selecting and and making offers but it's like without the final paperwork which is reliant on a third party who isn't moving nearly as fast isn't moving with the same urgency that we are I'll put it that way has been it, it's a little bit frustrating I'm looking forward to getting past this this point because you know, not only did we have to incorporate and set up multiple or an LLC and a limited partnership and, and all this stuff, which takes time, then we have to have all these docs drawn up and, and we won't next time. You know, batch number two will not have the same level of of foundation building and we'll have a lot more. A, we'll know more of what we're getting into and, and have better systems to do it. But realistically, the systems are not what are holding us back at this point. It's It really is this reliance on a third party who is moving at a, a glacial pace compared to us. So I look forward to uh, being out from under that here pretty soon. 
It's it's interesting that you say that because it reminds me of I don't know the inside story on this, but my guess is that that's probably the exact same reason why Stripe came out with Alice was to help founders get past all of that stuff so that they just didn't have to worry about the pace of the getting all the legal stuff taken care of. So it just reminds me of that. <laughs> Totally. It's it's friction, and it's something, specifically with Atlas, it's something that every company that's you know not a sole proprietorship has to do. And so they just want there to be more of those companies, right? They want to have that rising tide, and so if they can remove that friction. I remember when they first announced it, I was like, wow, they're really going outside of their core competency. But now I get what their long-term vision is, is they just want to have more, there be more businesses that are able to, to get online. And of course, that's what Stripe Atlas allows people to do super easy. And I wish, I, I've said it before, I wish there was Stripe Atlas for, for accelerators, you know, or for funds. There are some pre-made things for it. They're ridiculously expensive, like to the point of, of being just a non-starter. So we get to do it, do it from scratch. Good thing I'm used to doing that, huh? <laughs> building, building things from scratch. In other news, we uh, we have a few more podcast reviews. I'll just read one of them from WKingIO. He said, I could listen all day. I do not own my own SaaS, but I work for a small info product startup, and this information is so valuable. I'm able to see this information in practice and know that I will have a head start whenever the moment strikes for my own app from all the info Rob and Mike share. So thank you for that uh, review. We love a five-star rating, or if you'd prefer to spend a little more time writing a review, either one is fine. In Downcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever greater podcasts are sold, we appreciate it. Hey, Mike, when was the last time that you got something useful from Twitter? Um, I connected last week with somebody and had lunch with them, uh, and we connected over Twitter directly, so we've Coordinated that, I guess you could say. <laughs> Did that, a, that was a very long pause. I bet, I bet our editor edited that out, but to the listener, Mike was silent for about seven or eight seconds. Number two, did you have each other's email or did you literally meet and connect? Because like if Twitter had not existed, would you guys have been able to coordinate that? Yeah, I mean, we probably would have. It was somebody who joined the Micropreneur Academy, you know, years ago, and he's been eyeing MicroConf and it's um, Josh from Referral Rock. Mm, so okay. we had lunch last, uh, I want to say like, what was it? Maybe Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday. It was Monday this week. So he was in town from Maryland and just wanted to say hi. And so we got together and chatted for a while about our businesses and how things were going. And it was a good time. But it, like, other than that, like it's been a while since I've ever gotten any real value from Twitter. Like you're right. I mean, there's a huge pause because, and quite frankly, like I don't log into Twitter very often anymore because I just, I don't know. It's a lot of noise. I mean, I guess that's what Twitter's for, is for noise. Noise and, and arguments. Yeah. No, and I'm not, I, yeah, I guess I'm not a hater, but I really, I've, I've been trying to figure out how to get myself off of it because I find it more of a distraction than anything. But with that said, I haven't, you know, gotten anything valuable from Twitter in a very long time, except for yesterday and today, because I knew we were recording this episode. We didn't have enough questions to fill out a full episode. And, and with one tweet, got frankly enough for probably two episodes or more so i want to give a shout out to twitter for for bringing the thunder for once every six months for me or whatever but anyways enough of the enough of the twitter hating our first question is a question that was posed on twitter it wasn't even directly to us it was probably a few weeks ago and i like emailed it to my trello board and got it over here but justin jackson posted on twitter and he said one challenge i've had as a founder tracking and trying to triangulate thousands of qualitative data points. Somehow you have to decide which signals matter. 
But even then, plotting all those data points on a map and deciding on a direction is tough. And then Ali Blum replied to him and said, same, I think about this pretty much all day, every day. I think we should discuss because I have thoughts on this. Basically, how do you do this, right? That's, that's the question here is, is how do we as founders, how do you as a founder do that is probably the best, the best question is you have a bunch of qualitative data. How do you decide on a direction when, you know, there are conflicting signals? I feel like I, I don't like this answer. I'll tell you that before I give it. It depends. No, just kidding. No, <laughs> it, even worse than that. It's like, it's a lot of gut feel. It like, you kind of go with what feels important at the time because it's hard to take some of that data and say like this is justifiably more important than that like based on whatever rules there are like you try to put in place like it's hard to put rules down on paper that are immutable like there's always things that are changing and there's always stuff that's going to factor into those decisions like for example the video that i had to do for google it wasn't really all that important and i pushed it off for a long time because it just wasn't important and then there was a deadline where it's like okay you've got to get a week before we just outright reject your application it's like okay now i i have to do this now and it's because like the priority has bumped up because there's a hard line in the sand and it has to get done by that time or there's consequences and i feel like a lot of my decision-making around priorities tends to be driven by negative consequences of not doing something as opposed to like, there's going to be a positive outcome for X, Y, or Z. Because just there's so many things that are going on at any given time and you have to try and juggle them all at once. And it's hard to do that. I actually think that's a good answer. I think gut feel is the first thing that came to my mind. I think rules of thumb are are something that if if you can possibly apply rules of thumb or you know expertise from other people who've gone down before it, then start there. But if not, it's a ton of gut feel. And and Justin has he has stumbled upon or or identified maybe a better word. He's identified the edges of where we can have a startup blueprint and where things are no, you're, you're drawing your own map, right? Where the map ends in essence. So I actually have a tattoo on my, uh, my shoulder that is a map and there's a hand drawing at the edges. And it's a metaphor for exactly this, of going off the beaten path of, originally it was like, well, I'm not going to work nine to five, you know, a salary job. I'm going to go be a contractor. And people were like, whoa, that's risky. And then I'm not going to do salaried work anymore. I'm going to build products. Wow. That's really risky or hard. Can you even do that? And then while you're building those products, there's no map anymore or very, very little map. And frankly, 10, 15 years ago, there was almost no map. And then, you know, things like this podcast and, you know, even lean startup and, and customer development and, you know, Saster and MicroConf and like those have enabled us to kind of develop a mental model, you know, and there are books that come out on the topic and stuff. And it helps all of us have kind of a, a loose map or a loose blueprint, but there's always an edge to that. And this is the point, you know, where you have a bunch of data points to decide on a direction, there's no map. And this is where what separates, I would say, you know, a poor founder from a, a mediocre one, a mediocre from a good, a good from a great is how well they're able to make these decisions. I would also say that this has at least for me gotten easier over time. I feel like I've gotten better at it about, because what, here's what it is. It's making decisions without sufficient data. You don't have all the necessary data to actually make the decision, so you have to fill the rest in in your head. I believe there's almost never a right answer to these things. There's always multiple right, multiple tough, wrong answers. I also believe that most decisions are reversible. 
almost all decisions. There are very, very, very few that are not. Some you may think are not reversible. They may come with a cost, monetary. They may come with relationship costs. They may come with agony, pain, time, whatever. But almost every decision is reversible. The ones that are truly not are the ones that I now agonize over and everything else I tend to make a, a pretty quick gut feel decision, realizing that if we need to change course later, you can. Yeah, I've, I look at all those different data points and kind of see them as like they're signals that point in a certain direction, but some of them are more important than others. And based on the situation or timeline or things that you're dealing with, like some of them just are going to come out on top when if you had rules on paper, it's very hard to create a set of rules that say exactly what to do or how to track those things and determine what matters because it's just and as you said like I, th I think that that's a, a really good point about the fact that there are these guidelines and rules of thumb that you can follow but at the same time they're just signals that's all it means and and there isn't a right or wrong answer unless you're looking at it in retrospect in retrospect there was always a right answer or a best answer or an optimal answer but because you probably are working with only about 30% to 40% of the complete picture at any given time, you have to, I'll call it guessing a little bit, but it's more like educated model recognition of like what's going on. And that's why microconf, as you said, is like so important in these conferences and communities where other people have seen those types of things and they can recognize it essentially on your behalf if you have not been there before and you haven't and you are not able to directly recognize it. That's why mentors help. That's why accelerator programs work. Like Paul Graham, I would imagine, could walk into just about any startup and give pretty solid feedback about why it will or won't work and probably be very reasonably accurate on it just by virtue of having talked to 1,500 to 2,000 or 3,000 startup founders and helping them through all those different situations. Right. There's a book called Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. It's about how to make decisions. And I believe Ruben Gomez from Pidsketch turned me onto that. But I listened to it a couple of years ago. And something they say in that book is just because the outcome turns out bad doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. Those two things are not linked, you know, like you make the best decision you can with the data you have and with the with the information and the gut feel and whatever else, the intuition, whatever you want to call it. And, and then you do the best you can, you know, and you reverse it if you need to or you, you correct course as you move forward. And I think that's actually a problem for a lot of people, myself included, to, you know, a large extent is trying to figure out. Can I just make a decision and move on or even just recognizing that ultimately the decision that you make is going to like you're a reasonably smart person. You're going to make the best decision with the information you have at the time. And it may turn out to have been a suboptimal answer or solution to whatever it is you were trying to do. But waiting is not necessarily going to help you very much. Like you're basically just wasting time at that point when you could have been trying to move something forward in one direction or the other. And maybe it was the wrong direction, but as you said, those types of things tend to be reversible. And yes, it could take some pain, but if you wait around for enough information, you have wasted so much time and then you still have to do it. So moving is better than not moving. Yeah, opportunity cost, right, of postponing. Or, or agonizing or waiting, procrastinating, whatever word you want to look for of a decision. It's hard. And that's why most people don't do this because it's, you know, don't start companies because it's, it's uncharted and it's scary and it takes a while to get used to and it's uncomfortable. And I think that that's when you know that you're probably, I won't say doing things right, but it's like, you know, that when you're, you're in a zone of personal growth is when you're doing things that are making you feel not comfortable. That's when you're going to get better. So cool. Glad uh, Justin threw that out. 
on Twitter. Our next question is about how to stay on task with no extrinsic motivation, no external motivation. It's from uh, Mike Manfren. He's at Manfren on Twitter. He says, how the hell do you stay on task when you have no extrinsic motivation? I've been letting myself spiral out second and third guessing design decisions and getting absolutely paralyzed with choice and scope that I end up doing no work towards my startup. And then Ken Wallace chimed in, think about having a mastermind because those folks can guide you. And I actually think that's a, a good thing we should throw out. I mean, that's often with the bigger decisions, that's who I would rely on is someone in a mastermind. But what other thoughts do you have here for uh, Mr. Manfred? It's interesting that this question comes up because I kind of just talked about it, which was like you get, it's very easy to run into that situation where you're you're not sure what to do. So you wait and you second guess yourself and you don't do the work because you're second and third guessing your design decisions and thinking that if you look at the problem more or you try to gather more data, it's going to help you in some way, shape or form. And it usually doesn't. I mean, and I think that that's a very different problem than not having motivation, whether it's, you know, intrinsic or extrinsic, like that's a different problem than being in a situation where you second guess yourself and you're not sure what to do. So you try and gather more information. I think those are two completely different problems. Yeah, I agree. He says, how do you stay on task when you have no ex like external motivation, right? And I, I've definitely had times, especially when I'm, when I start to burn out or when I'm feeling depressed, when I don't get enough sleep, there are seasonal times where it's dark outside and cold and stuff where I am unmotivated to do things. And I really struggle to stay on task. And I often, those are the times where I strategically break out caffeine. I turn on bright lights. I turn on loud music. You know, I, I use all kind of the sensory options that I have to try to get myself, you know, into a zone. And I try to get into a routine where when I hear this playlist start, or when I hear this single song that I'm endlessly looping start, that that triggers me to, I force myself to get in and, and do things. Now, the nice part is I haven't, it's probably been a year or more since I've felt that way, but I, I've gone through months and months of, of stretches of that. That's how I do it. But he's also then asking, he's spiraling out second guessing design decisions, getting paralyzed with choice and scope. I mean, this does tie into that first question, you know, or first proclamation that Justin made of like, how do you make these decisions and not get paralyzed with choice? And that's where we said, like, this is hard. It's gut feel. You can undo things later. I think a lot of us as developers, don't want to make the wrong choice because we feel like we'll have to rewrite all this code and refactoring is a pain in the butt. And if we make this, this design decision in the database, then we'll never live it down, never be able to correct it. And while it will be painful to correct, these things are reversible. So that's where I tell myself actively, if I find myself being hung up, and for, the first thing is to identify that you're doing this and being like, I'm not being productive right now because of this because of this decision or this item in my Trello board or this email, why am I not doing that? Am I stressed about it? Am I, I, I just don't want to face it. Am I scared that I'm going to make the wrong decision? You know, there's a bunch of things that I will try to identify and then I'll say, okay, if I'm stressed about it, then why? And then why? And then why? You know, keep asking the whys to get to the true source of it to figure out if I'm actually stressed or if it's a design decision that I will either think to myself like, well, I'm going to call up XYZ person who I know has a great design and usability sense. And I'm going to ask for 15 minutes of their time and, and say, can you help me with this? So that I have some, some sense of calm about the decision, or maybe I just make a gut feel and I go forward and, you know, hope it's the right decision. So the, these are kind of tactics that I would use, right? Trying to get other people involved. And I do think Ken's, Ken Wallace's suggestion of, of having a mastermind so that you can bring these things to people 
on a regular basis, I, I think is a good one. Ken, of course, runs Mastermind Jam, which matches people up into in the startup space into uh, masterminds. But I think that those are those are also like two different pieces of it. One is recognizing it, and then two, actually addressing the problem. And I think the recognition of it is something that tends to take much longer than it probably should for most people. And I found that myself is like, I kind of mentally know that I'm not making progress on something, but I don't necessarily allocate time to analyze like my productivity to like at noon, for example, it's like, I don't have a 15 minutes that I set aside and say, am I making progress today? Am I doing what I expected to do? And am I procrastinating on stuff or just not doing things because I don't want to, or I'm afraid to make mistakes. I think that the identification piece is the part that kind of creeps up on us and it lasts far longer than it should if we aren't on the lookout for it kind of at all times. So like what I do, for example, I do a lot of journaling. So I have a, an app that sends me an email and says like, hey, write into this little thing here and you can explain like what your day is supposed to be like, for example. And I do that on a fairly regular basis. I'd say probably at least three or four, if not five days a week. And then I will notice like the following day if I'm not making progress on something because I will, I'll be like a little annoyed and and usually my sleep will be suffering and I'll say, oh, I didn't get a good night's sleep last night because I was thinking about this and it makes me think about that stuff. So it's kind of a forcing function. I mean, that's something that people could think about is trying to just, I won't say journal your way out of it. But it, I don't look at it as full-fledged journaling. It's like I might write a couple of sentences or maybe a paragraph or two, and it's usually like the stuff that's bothering me, and that just brings it to my attention that maybe – like if I start writing a lot, like I know that I need to pay attention to it and maybe take a step back. But otherwise, I can easily go a couple of weeks or a, a month or two without really noticing, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I've burned two months, and I've gotten nothing done. That's a good point. The faster you get at basically knowing yourself, right, at, at noticing that you're you're having kind of negative thought patterns or negative behaviors or behaviors that are causing you to procrastinate or go in circles or whatever, the faster you're able to do that and identify it, the faster you're then able to actively attack it, get through it, and, and make progress. And I think this is something all of us struggle with in one form or another. And I think this is something that you get better at over time if you if you focus on it. This is so much of what you know my wife Sherry does on the Zen Founder podcast and, and in her writings and such, is looking at how these thought patterns you know come about, how to identify them, how to how to get through them. I've been saying for quite a while that I think 60, 70% of entrepreneurship is the, is mental. You know, I think more than half of entrepreneurship is purely just dealing with your own psychology, your own things that self-sabotaging behaviors, procrastination, whatever it is that, that you struggle with. If you can learn to overcome that, you will have such a, an easier time and make so much more progress so much faster. I mean, this is from, I'm saying this from personal experience that getting into your own psychology and whether that's with a spouse or a mastermind or a trained professional, you know, who, who is either a therapist or a business coach or whatever, I, I think it's, I think it's invaluable. So thanks for the question. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is from at Greg Dignio on Twitter. He says, my question revolves how you and Mike manage your time. Rob, you've built and exited a company. You guys are both parents. You run a conference, you have the podcast, you write books. My loose question is, what does your day slash week look like? So he's kind of, you know, asking it in a, diff- a couple different ways. It's like, how do you manage your time? And what does a typical day, week look like? And I think he's 
probably looking for the days or weeks where we're more productive, not the ones where I stare at my computer for three hours, don't get anything done, and then just wander off to go for a walk because I realize I'm uh, not actually focused. I tend to look at it on a weekly basis. So my weeks, I'd say for the most part, are pretty similar. So so I, I work from home and the weeks that I tend to get screwed up is when the kids are home from school. So let's see here, if I'm starting on Monday, Monday is usually my heavy work day. So I have it blocked off on my calendar. So even if somebody wants to schedule time with me using Calendly, they just simply can't. I have a you know, hidden calendar that I could send them a link if I really needed to talk to somebody on a Monday. But typically, I don't hand that out to people. And it's usually, you know, on a case by case basis. Tuesdays is not blocked off, but I tend to, I don't know, I I tend to get a fair amount of work done on Tuesdays as well. Monday, I usually will work late. So like seven, eight o'clock at night, just because I tend to not have anything else going on. Tuesdays is a little bit lighter. And then in the evenings on Tuesday night, I have a D&D game that I play every week. And then see here, Wednesdays, I probably do less work. And then Thursdays, I do less work. <laughs> and then Fridays, I try to get things done and set up for the following week. Saturdays, like do a bunch of stuff around the house, um, take the kids to, you know, whatever they have, music lessons or soccer or what have you. Saturday night, I have another, an online D&D game that I play. And then Sunday is usually kind of do whatever we usually clean up around the house and stuff like that but that's i mean my week is pretty straightforward for the most part i don't know about how about you like do you have a do you do it on a daily basis or a weekly basis i tend to think about things on a daily basis most of my days are different from one another so we home sherry and i collaboratively homeschool one of our kids and he's he's older he's almost 13 so it's not like we're sitting there teaching him stuff He's online doing, you know, taking courses and, and, you know, making progress on his own. And then we just have to kind of monitor and poke in. And so some of my days I'm kind of on and I know that I can schedule fewer calls that day because I don't want to be interrupted. And then other days are, I'm just completely focused on work. So I look at it at a day-by-day basis. What I what I've noticed about myself is that I used to code when I was writing code, I could sit and write it for 12 hours straight. And I used to do that. That was actually my optimal way of functioning was to sit down and get momentum and break very briefly to eat or use the bathroom and then get back. And I mean, I would do 12, 14 hour code days and make get two or three days worth of progress done in in that amount of time. And I think, I don't know if it's as I've gotten older or if it's that I don't code anymore because the coding was a very logical left brain. There's some creative in it, but compared to what I'm doing now where I'm like actually actively producing content and having to think things through and these higher level decisions, they're very, they're a lot more taxing on my, on my good glucose, so to speak. You know, there's only so much good brain functioning that you can have. Writers who, who write books, Stephen King, you know, these highly productive writers, they don't write for 10 hours a day. They tend to get up right in the morning for between three and four hours tops. And then they spend the rest of the day doing other things because there's only so much good focus you have. So now what I've, what I've found is that I'm highly productive in short bursts, say one to two hours. And I try to have a forcing function that forces me to stop because if I don't, I will tend to just work two, three, four hours straight. And I feel my productivity 
just descend over the, you know, the subsequent one or, you know, the last one or two hours that I'm working. And I have different forcing functions. Oftentimes it is a, you know, it's a child getting home from school or I take the kid, two of the kids to jujitsu and it's only about an hour that we're sitting there and it's a gr- I get so much done in that hour and it is the worst working conditions. It is terrible. I'm, I'm hunched. I have no plug. I have no chair. I'm literally hunched against a wall like I'm in junior high and gym or something. And I'm like sitting almost Indian style with my back to the wall, terrible posture. I have a laptop there and I get more email done in that 45 to 60 minutes than I do two hours sitting in my house. And I have no external monitors. I have nothing. And it's loud. And it's no, But there's something about that space and the fact that I know my time is so compressed that I just hammer through to-dos and I hammer through through email. So that's just like one example. But I have a bunch of times like that during the week that I'm finding. Uh, there's kids' music lessons. There's you know other things where I find that if I force myself to only have this much time, that I get the work done faster. And so that's kind of a personal uh, hack that I've been doing yeah, I've been doing lately. I think another thing is these are low level, like how to get things done quicker on a higher level. I say no to everything except for what's on my goal list for the year. And so if you look at running a conference, you and I just do that. That's on the to-do list. You know, like I, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty efficient about it. I feel like I focus on it when I need to. And then I make it a priority. The podcast is something that we've essentially automated almost all of it. So you and I show up for two hours every other week and that's two episodes and we walk away and then the episode goes live. The next two episodes go live. We don't do anything else. So we've automated, we paid for years. I mean, since, you know, 10 episodes in, we've paid for an editor who posts the episode, who writes the show notes, who does all that stuff. Writing the books, I view it when I'm going to write a book, I will make that a priority and I will work on it every day. I will probably, I would, if I was writing or revising my book right now, I would probably do at least an hour of that once a day. And then I would continue to do my other stuff. But I wouldn't say yes to a bunch of things, right? I I say no to some interviews. I say no to a lot of opportunities to jump on a call with so-and-so to explore this or that. I say no to speaking at, you know, some conferences, not all, but if I don't think it's a valuable use of my time, I save the two travel days and the, the time to write the talk and all that. And I put, push that towards things that I feel like are my highest priorities that are in my goals and things that hopefully will bring the most value to me, but also most valuable to this community, you know, that we've built and more value to more people. I mean, I think that's something else I've had to tone down is I don't do as nearly, nearly as many one-on-one things because I find that I can be more valuable by writing a book or recording a podcast or writing a conference talk that can then be distributed to thousands or tens of thousands of people. I also don't like doing things that are ephemeral, right? Things that don't stick around. So to me, a blog post is better than a tweet because a tweet's gone. Uh, A book is better than a blog post because a book sticks around for a long term. You know, there, there are things that just, it's a body of work that I think that this is a kind of a lesson that I've learned over the years is, you know, to focus on those things that, that, that help more people that stick around longer, that have deeper meaning and that bring more value to both yourself and the people that will be consuming it. That was a longer answer than I thought. <laughs> that was more than I thought I had to say on that topic, but I, I think that was a good, I think it's a good question. I think number like higher level, it's like, it's about priorities and saying no to everything else. Number one. And then number two, it's about, staying motivated over the long term and showing up every day 
and getting shit done. It, relentless execution, right, is this phrase that I've used. That I've it's like a personal moniker that I have have adopted. Relentless execution, and that doesn't mean you go crazy and you work twenty hour days because I haven't worked more than forty hours a week in a decade. You know what I mean? I mean there have been these short stints, like when I was revamp, revamping Hit Tail, I worked sixty hour weeks for about six weeks, and then I and then I pair back. To my, to me, like a 35, 40 hour week schedule is ideal. Sometimes 30, depending on the the season of the year. But I find that I get more done when I actually have shorter weeks and I'm forced to, to, you know, make quick decisions and get stuff done. Yeah, I do as well. Like if you know in the back of your mind that you have as much time to work on something as you want, and you can just take as much time as you need, then it will take forever. Like you're, <laughs> I think it's the, what is it? Taylor's law, the, of amount of work will expand to fill the available time. I find the same thing. Like I will hold off on making decisions because I know that I have time to kind of ruminate on it, or I will take longer to do something just because I have the time available. And that's what, that's actually what makes my Mondays a little bit tough is that because I give myself a lot more time on that day, sometimes I'm not necessarily as productive. And then I'll find that sometimes on Tuesdays, I will be more productive, even though I have less time available to me to do work. Yep. I can totally see that. And I, you know, to come back to Greg's question, he says, what does your day or week look like? I feel like every day for me tends to be different, but I do like hitting things hard Monday morning by getting up. And I ask myself the question when I start of like, what has to get done today or what has to get done this week? What will move the business forward the most? You know, and when it was drip, it was like, well, it's getting everyone on the, you know, the the whole team on the same page and getting this decision made about what feature to build or this big deal we're trying to close. And now with Tiny Seed, it's like, it's, it's choosing the batch and it's getting that forward. So those go right to the top of the list. Even if I get in my email box and it has 50 things, the things that are on the topic of, of what I have to get done that day, I skim through it. I take care of all that stuff first and then everything else is on the side. I would say that my days probably don't look like you think they do. I start work later, a bit later than you probably think, and I end it earlier than you think. And I didn't used to do that again. I mean, I think that that's what we're coming back to is like forcing yourself to get stuff done in a shorter time frame. And it comes back to this, the cult of, of the Silicon Valley startup hours where they're like, I'm working 80 hour weeks and 90 hour weeks or whatever. Your productivity plummets. There've been a bunch of studies that have shown that it plummets after 40, 50, 60 hours a week. They've done it in construction with construction workers. When they go to six tens and seven tens, you literally, when you were estimating those jobs, you have this major markdown factor and there it's, there's books published by the, you know, electrical contractors who say, these are guidelines and, and it'll drop, you know, 30% over 50 hours and it drops 40% over 60 hours. And, and it's not just for those last 20 hours, it, it starts to fatigue. And then your entire 70 hours that you're working become 60% as effective, you know, and, and it's this crazy thing. And that's where the Silicon Valley startups who say, or the founders who say, oh, I'm just working all these hours. I'm always thinking, yeah, what are you, what are you doing? What are you actually accomplishing during that time? Because I find that I've been able to get quite a bit done in my career and my life. And, and I don't do that and really never have. Even when I was coding, when I talk about coding those 12 or 14 hour days, it was my early 20s, we had no kids. And what I would do, I was a contractor, consultant, and I would code that long day and then I'd take the next day off. So it wasn't that I was working long weeks, it was that I preferred to batch my work into a, a single stint, so to speak. I felt like it was more productive. To, once I got everything loaded up into my head, in the mental model, I hated stopping and losing all of that and having to regain it the next time I sat down. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like I I do wonder about 
some of the studies and stuff that where they say, oh, if you're working more hours, then it's not as good. You're not nearly as productive. But I do find that there's times where you just get into a rhythm and you're in the zone. And if you break out of it and to take breaks and shorter days or something like that, like it's kind of hard to load your brain up with all the stuff and all the little details that need to be there in order for you to get certain types of work done. And I'm certainly not saying that like it's broadly applicable, but there's times where, especially when it's coding, like taking a break is extremely disruptive and it's so much easier to just sit down there and bang at stuff for like four or six hours or eight hours. And if you're still being productive, then, you know, there's not a great reason to stop except for those forcing functions. So thanks for the question, Greg. I hope that one was helpful. If you want to connect with Mike or I on Twitter, I am at Rob Walling and he is at Single Founder. I feel like that probably wraps us up for the week, Mike. I think it does. So if you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupsarestos.com. Our theme music is an excerpt for Weather Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsarestos.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.